Copper is critical for renewable energy. Copper is critical for a lot of applications, right? And so I'm using that term critical uh, very intentionally because we have a big push on having copper recognized as a critical mineral uh, because the U.S. really has uh, all of the copper available within our borders if we wanted to to supply all the copper we would need to accomplish the clean energy transition in vehicles, in energy, uh, in all the other base applications that we're using copper for today. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Polk, and we are live in New York City at the Concordia Annual Summit with Andy Coretta Jr., president of the Copper Development Association. In this episode, we explore the critical role of copper in driving environmental innovation. From understanding why copper is an essential component in clean energy technologies to its impact on the electric vehicle industry, we'll uncover the intricacies of this multifaceted metal. Delving into the challenges faced by the copper industry, we'll discuss regulatory hurdles, supply chain disruptions, and the need for efficient permitting processes. Join us as we navigate the dynamic landscape of copper significance in promoting a greener and more sustainable future. When I was growing up, the word copper was synonymous with pennies. We were taught that pennies were made of copper, but the reality is pennies crafted after 1982 are copper-plated zinc, not entirely copper. Until recently, the word copper didn't mean much to me beyond spare change. However, what if I told you there's a whole other side to this metal, far beyond its role in pocket money? Unlike its link to spare change, copper is a crucial player in various clean energy technologies. Think about renewable energy sources like solar and wind power. They rely heavily on copper. It's not about pennies. It's about copper being a fundamental part of the wiring and infrastructure of these systems, making sure energy is transmitted efficiently. And consider electric vehicles, the driving force behind greener transportation. They need a lot of copper for their motors and charging infrastructure. So what makes copper so valuable? It's its conductivity, durability, and efficiency. These qualities make copper indispensable in our shift towards cleaner and more sustainable energy solutions. Who better to guide us through the world of copper than an expert? I'm thrilled to announce that joining us on the Green Hour is none other than Andy Coretta Jr., president of the Copper Development Association, the market development, engineering, and information services arm of the copper industry, chartered to enhance and expand markets for copper and its alloys in North America. Coretta brings over 30 years of copper industry experience to his role. He has been with the Copper Development Association since 1992, having previously served multiple roles in market development, strategy, and organizational management, in both regional and national roles, most recently as Vice President of Market Development across all copper and copper alloy product in market areas. 
In addition, Coretta has served in various team roles with the International Copper Association, including time as the leader of the global strategy team and as a board member with various roles on the executive committee of ASTM International, including a term as the 2020 chair of the board. Beyond childhood associations of copper with spare change lies a deeper narrative. Copper, transcending its connection to pocket money, emerges as a cornerstone in the realm of clean energy technologies. It forms the backbone of efficient renewable sources such as solar and wind power and is instrumental in powering the surge of electric vehicles. So the next time you reach into your pocket and pull out a couple pennies, consider the pivotal role this metal plays in driving the clean energy transition. All right, welcome back to the Green Hour. We have Andy Coretta Jr. and we're going to talk all about copper today. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, Preston. Let's start off with copper. Um, and, and for some of our guests, they know copper on a very surface level. But really, I want to hear your role in promoting the use of copper, not in just one industry, but in various industries. Yeah, our, our role in a really succinct way is to bring the value of copper to society to solve challenges of today and tomorrow. So copper has been around 10,000 years. It's one of man's earliest metals. It was used in making swords and armor and healthcare and coinage. And as societies evolved, so did copper's uses. So very malleable ductile material, very good conductor of heat and electricity. So as new technologies evolve, there's usually a place where copper is going to play a key role. Um, a lot of the technologies of today that you see in clean energy and electric vehicles, um, renewable power, all of those, copper plays a critical role in them, uh, mainly because of its high conductivity. So looking at, uh, I mean, you talk about clean energy, and I mean, this podcast is called The Green Hour. I mean, we're sustainability focused. We're talking about all different kinds of topics around sustainability. So when, when thinking of copper, I, I just kind of want to understand how it's a critical component in clean energy technologies. You mentioned some right there, but could you talk about, you know, why it is a critical component? Mainly it's critical to most of the renewable energy, sustainable energy technologies, highly um, focused on its high conductivity. So there are other metals out there that are good conductors. Aluminum is a good conductor. It's about 60% the conductivity of copper, um, but it's not quite as good, right? And then the, the, the thing copper does, it delivers that conductivity. It allows you to make parts that will deliver the same amount of electricity, but in a much smaller space. So think about a, a wind turbine, pretty big component that we're putting on top of a really tall tower, either in the ocean or on land, and we've got to support it, right? And it, we've got to actually get it on site. So the size of those components really matter. And so copper is very good at delivering the uh, the electrical needs in a much smaller space. Take it down off of that pole, make an electric vehicle, same thing. You want to make sure the vehicle's light to get the most range possible. So lightweighting the vehicle is an important topic, but you also got to make sure that you can fit all of those new electrical loads into the body of the vehicle, right? So there's a confined space. So copper is very, very good at, at delivering those electrical needs and meeting those electrical needs in that space. I mean, you mentioned the electric vehicle industry. Obviously, I think as a country, as a world, we're trying to transition to more EVs to limit emissions. But, and you touched on it a little bit right there, talking about copper's, um, you know, impact on the electric vehicle industry. But could you expand a little bit deeper on on really copper's, overall impact for the electric vehicle industry and importance um, moving forward. As, again, we try to transition from 
from more uh, of, of gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles? Well, first, when we transition from an internal combustion engine vehicle, and you go to an electric vehicle, no matter what it is, a passenger vehicle or a, a bus or a, a heavy-duty truck, um, you've now transitioned from a uh, power source that's using a fossil fuel. You've got to create, um, take a power source and create it into motion. And we're done up with electric motors. Uh, the heart of an electric motor, uh, copper's in the heart of the windings of the electric motor, makes them efficient, makes them small, makes them powerful. Um, delivering the power from the battery pack to those motors is important, right? So we want to do that. Constrained space, copper's good at that. One thing that everyone focuses on in the electric vehicle is the battery. Right? It's got got these all these minerals that most people can't pronounce, don't know where they came from, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell you what they look like. And that's great. It, that, that does make the battery work. But none of those uh, components, that battery does not work without a copper anode collector inside the battery, which is made out of a, a really thin uh, copper foil that, interestingly enough, it's a very high-tech application is made with 100% um, recycled copper content. So it's one of those things a lot of folks will look and say, all of these electrical applications, high purity, high quality, has to be this. We're actually meeting that demand with all recycled content, and that's what powers that vehicle. Um, and then there's all, if you look through your car, there's all kinds of electrical loads you don't think about. You know, the motors that make the windows go up and down and that make the locks unlock. All of those are little electric motors. Copper makes those work. So it sounds like that that copper, it sounds like the copper is really influential for the EV and, and you need it for the battery, as you're saying. So I'm guessing as we move and increase demand of electric vehicles, that's going to increase the demand of copper. And I just had a conversational mining. So I, I kind of wanted to ask this question, too, because it's in the back of my head. But it's a leading question. It's a leading okay. question, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but thinking about, you know, obviously the demand of copper is going to increase. Mm -hmm. So the effects of mining, um, what would you say, I mean, do you know where copper is mined? Like where, where are we getting copper mainly in the world? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to backtrack once because you've used the word a couple of times. And you keep saying copper is important to the vehicle. Copper is essential for the vehicle. Copper is actually critical for the vehicle. Copper is critical for renewable energy. Copper is critical for a lot of applications, right? And so I'm using that term critical uh, very intentionally because we have a big push on having copper recognized as a critical mineral uh, because the U.S. really has uh, all of the copper available within our borders if we wanted to, to supply all the copper we would need to accomplish the clean energy transition in vehicles, in energy, uh, in all the other base applications that we're using copper for today. Now, we don't supply all that because much of it's still in the ground, right? And in the U.S., most of that comes out of the desert southwest. Um, but there's areas all throughout the country. Uh, there's uh, the copper deposits in Minnesota um, that are uh, rich deposits that we could access. In Alaska, all up and down the, the Rocky Mountains. Uh, the problem is that the copper's there. In the U.S., it's hard to actually get those mines permitted, um, put into operation where we can actually bring that copper to the market. Uh, and so it's an important point. We're, we're focusing on trying to get copper recognized as a critical mineral um, because much of our legislative action, our policy action in, in Washington on all of these sustainable technologies is focused on critical minerals as defined by the critical minerals list. And as I said earlier, none of those applications will work 
without copper in it, right? So it's just as important. It's like, it's like if you and I were going to go and say, hey, we want to bake an apple pie or something. I'm going to focus on, can I get apples? Well, I also ought to focus on, can I get flour, right? Copper's the flour. Um, so it's one of those, we, we get it from all over the world. Um, we have a lot of reliable trade partners, but there are all kinds of um, supply shocks that could happen. Um, very much like the, the pandemic of 2020, what it did to uh, you know, our grocery store shelves. Um, there's all kinds of these things that we really have to pay attention to to make sure we can de-risk the environment in the U.S. for the availability of copper. So we don't have to get 100% domestic sources, but we ought to be able to if we, ha- if we need to. Right. Um, and one of those events we, uh, we talk about now that hit the news a bit two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, was – we have 200 ships sitting on either side of the Panama Canal. They can't get through because they haven't had rain and the water level is so low. Now these, these ships can't get through. So we're looking at the data on copper that's imported into the U.S., both as refined copper that we're going to make products out of here or as actual finished products. Almost 60% of that comes through the Panama Canal. So just imagine if they don't get rain. Um, so maybe they get through. Maybe they sit there for months. Now you take something like an electric transformer. We're trying to we, we want to try to put in a, a solar PV um, uh, station, generation station, and we're going to need all kinds of transformers to do that. It's transformer industry is already under supply crunch. Now take it and you know it's, it might be an eighteen month lead time for distribution transformer. Now take it and say, okay, I can't get the copper I need as an OEM to make that transformer, and I start extending that to twenty four months and forty eight months. Pretty soon our policy goals of Going to EV charging stations and renewable power, pretty soon that becomes uh, imperiled. And we're just going to push off that time that we can actually make it happen. Right. I I think supply chains, I mean, I work in manufacturing, so we were affected by supply chains during COVID, especially um, just just lead times on different products. I mean, we, we couldn't produce enough for the demand that we had. I mean, we had so many, um, so many back orders just in manufacturing, but you touched on um, the EV charging stations and this is one thing that a lot of people, I guess, I would say that don't think about. I mean, you can produce these EVs and produce the minerals and, and, and extract the minerals to put in the batteries and produce the cars. But if you don't have the charging station fleet ready and you don't have the grids ready, then like, what's the point? So um, th- there's one piece of policy that I'd like to talk about, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, or it actually might be the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. Um, I think it is the it Bipartisan is. Infrastructure Law, not the IRA. But in this policy, I think there's billions of dollars that are um, put towards the fleet of charging stations for EVs across the U.S. So could you talk about the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law and how that's going to impact EVs and in turn impact copper? Yeah, it's well, one, I'm going to go backwards because the impact on copper is that in order to put all of these uh, technologies in place, they, um, we need concentrated uh, strategic prioritization to come in to say it is important for us to reach this policy of transitioning from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles that we have to put charging infrastructure in, in place. So if we follow that train of thought to make that happen, there has to be some priority on funding available to make that happen, Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. Um, and all these things to put money in place to do that so that companies can actually start getting out there, just like anything else. Um, you're just not going to go out tomorrow, buy up a, a piece of land, and like you wouldn't buy it and throw a gas station on it. There's all kinds of things you've got to do to get that there. High-speed uh, 
EV charging stations are going to be the same thing, right? You, the permitting, zoning, all of these things you're going to have to go through to align up to actually put a, a good EV charging infrastructure network throughout the country. That's not going to happen overnight, right? So while the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act put funding in place, um, there's got to be a lot of other things to go along with how do we deploy that funding effectively, actually get charging stations in on the ground, uh, you know, in a way that we can actually um, operationalize uh, really a, a nationwide EV fleet. So, I mean, we, we talked about the bipartisan infrastructure law and we talked about the funding it provided for charging stations across the U.S. But another cool thing that they're doing is providing funding for electric buses and, and the whole fleet of electric buses. I think it's $5 billion that they have allotted for electric buses. I know that your organization is, is working a lot with this electric bus um, funding. So could you talk about what your organization is doing and how it is using something like the bipartisan infrastructure law to influence um, buses? Yeah. When we looked at uh, really what, where the U.S. was heading in the transition to electric vehicles, um, you know, we're a, a small trade association. Uh, uh, don't have a lot of resources. We're like, where can we make it, our voice make a difference? We're going to be additive. It's just another voice in the crowd. And we've been, we were working and continue to work on the passenger vehicle space, but there's billion dollar companies and multi-billion dollar companies that they're leading that charge. You know, your Teslas and your, you know, all your big three automakers and uh, you name it, uh, they're leading that charge and they really didn't need us. It, it's good to have us along. We're an important and critical mineral to, to make that work. But we really started kind of looking about where uh, could we create a difference? And we came across electric uh, electric school buses. Uh, and we didn't know at the time, but uh, school buses is the largest public transportation fleet in the nation. 480,000 approximately school buses on the roads in the U.S. Uh, every day um, that outstrips. It's bigger than if you add together municipal buses, if you add uh, airline transportation, if you add so all of those other public transportation fleets, add them all together, they're not as big as the electric school bus fleet. And no one was really paying much attention to it. The, the vehicles were there. The, the bus manufacturers had designs. But there was really um, a high hurdle to get over from school districts because like electric vehicles and internal combustion uh, passenger vehicles, the initial cost of the bus is, is higher. Uh, and, a, and the school districts usually operate on a, operating on a pretty tight budget. And so we started to look and say, can we actually look to these, um, this legislation like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and get some funding and some impetus behind and create some inertia for turning those electric school buses uh, or school buses into electric vehicles. Uh, we worked, we put together a school bus coalition, electric school bus coalition has about 50 um, participants with us. Uh, all the way from utilities to bus manufacturers to NGOs, other trade associations, uh, and started advoc advocating for really some federal funding to help school districts overcome that initial cost hurdle. And in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, that ended up in $5 billion specifically to school buses to, to go electric to school districts. And then ad uh, additional $5 billion going for alternative power um, uh, vehicles, which also could be an electric vehicle. So there could be potentially more money there. Um, and now we've been turning to how do we help school districts, our, our coalitions turn, how do we help school districts actually access that money and put plans in place to build out the infrastructure, put charging in, uh, can they leverage that charging to support other municipal fleets? Um, maybe they're code inspection vehicles. Uh, maybe if they have municipal garbage collection, 
to to actually use that shared charging infrastructure to move more of the municipal vehicles over to uh, electric vehicles. A big thing to think about, too, is the actual kids, you know, riding in the school buses and, you know, the diesel smoke that, that, that's coming and that they're breathing in. So going electric will really help this, too. And, and I know that, that you'll have some, some words on this, but when I mean, we talk about ESG, you know, we talk about environment, social governance. That's environmental, okay, but it's also social when, when, you, when you talk about the impacts it has on, on kids on the school bus. So can you talk about the diesel smoke and just the impact I, on kids? I can. I mean, it's been a long time since I sat on a school bus as a kid, but I know all of us have uh, fond memories of sitting at a, a bus stop sucking in diesel fumes, and, uh, and we know what that smells like. And so, you know, we did, our, and we have our children out there breathing in diesel fumes that we really don't. Number one, it's a, a health issue. Number two, it's an environmental pollutant. Um, that we can actually clean up and, and improve health, improve air quality uh, by transitioning to electric school buses. Um, and then the other interesting thing is we can improve communities. So you take a, a school bus, um, charges in a lot overnight, goes out in the morning, you know, uh, picks up kids, delivers them to school. Then it usually goes back and sits in the same lot all day long. And then it goes out in the afternoon. So it has very discrete time periods it's operating really ideal for a, a larger electric vehicle. Um, but then on the other side of that is you've got a fleet of batteries that are storing energy that can be deployed in emergency situations. It can be deployed to put uh, energy back to the grid. So, you know, you get a, I, I live in the Midwest, you get a tornado that comes through, wipes out a, uh, the power in the town for five, six, seven days. Now you actually have a source of ready emergency energy that you can deploy to, um, you know, keep things running, uh, get power back up, at least in critical applications. So it's really an interesting uh, and compelling uh, electric vehicle case uh, that, that wasn't getting a lot of attention. So I want to go back to your point that you were making earlier about domestically sourcing copper. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we have the available resources domestically, why not tap into them? Um, and like you said, I mean, I think you said 60% of our copper that we're, that we're bringing in is coming through the Panama Canal. And if the water levels aren't high enough, then, I mean, lead times are going to be crazy. I mean, like you said, 24 months, 48 months, mm -hmm. even more than that. The economic and national security benefits of domestically sourcing copper. I've talked in the past um, with a company called GreenMet about critical rare earth mining and how there's a few minerals that we outsource specifically to China and how that poses national security risk. But I want to understand copper and, and understand the economic and national security benefits. So could you expand upon that? We've been talking about EVs and talking about renewable energy, but there's a, there's a vast number of applications that copper is used in that are in the defense sector, uh, could be from ordnance. Um, and even if you look at those specific sectors, look at the defense sector, it operates on vehicles. It operates on electricity. It, you know, you got to have barracks. You got to so all of these traditional copper-intensive technologies out there that deliver electricity or power or you know whatever it might be um, rely on copper. So it doesn't really don't really want to focus on the fact that okay we're in this disagreement with China that, that the trade war seems to be elevating. That go where that may, um, we've got to make sure that that we have enough here to supply it. Uh, one of the approaches has been, okay, the, the, the current administration is taking, is we have enough friendly nations that can supply copper to us on, in what's being termed French shoring. Uh, that's great. In some ways, we have a 
uh, finite natural resource uh, that if we can get elsewhere um, from friendly countries to supply our needs or a certain part of our needs, we should do that, especially if it's economical. But take a you brought China up, take a country like China and the U.S. and let's say Chile, a third uh, party partner. Chile's friendly with China. Chile's friendly with the U.S. We would consider them a friend. Um, much of the copper supply that comes into the U.S. from offshore comes from Chile. Uh, so we would say they're friendly. We could, you know, we get into a situation where China invades Taiwan or whatever it might be. And now all of a sudden we're not getting a supply from uh, copper smelters uh, in China. And we look and say, okay, Chile's, we're just going to go to Chile. We're going to get more out of their, their supply chain. Well, Chile sells to China as well. About 40% of the export of copper from Chile goes to China. About 20% comes to the United States. So if we got in a conflict with China, who are they going to be friendly with? Right? Who, has the, who has the leverage and the buying power? So we have to ask these questions all the time. It's great to be able to have these partnerships, and we should continue to do that. But we should also realize that what if we can't get that 20%, but we can get it here in the U.S.? And then, that, then our challenge is, um, like with anything we want to do in the United States, we want to put a power plant in, you want to put electrical distribution in, you want to put a charging station in, you want to uh, build a copper mine. Um, no one wants it in their backyard, right? So they, you always get into those issues where, why should we do it here? From copper, the easy answer is because that's what the copper is, right? It's, we could probably move a power plant around uh, quite a bit, but uh, you know, copper is deposited in only in economic quantities in certain parts of the United States, like I mentioned earlier, we got to go where the copper is to get it. Mm. So, so I, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. And one cool thing the state of Georgia has recently done is open up unit three and four of plant Vogel, um, one of the first nuclear projects. And I think 30 to 40 years, but with plant Vogel, um, there's a lot of time overruns and cost overruns. And a lot of it was due to um, regulatory hurdles I mean, I would even say supply chain disruptions along the way. So I want to take Plant Vogel just as an example, but I want to understand the challenges faced by the copper industry, including these regulatory hurdles and supply chain disruptions. Okay, well, that's a great example because I came out of the nuclear industry oh, and wow. used, to, used to design nuclear power plant uh, piping systems. So, so I know what you're talking about. But right. uh, and, and I guess it's very much the same. Um, the you know, one of the issues is it's very easy to compare if you if we went by the book in the United States on so permitting times, our permitting times probably not probably they do not look all that outrageous as compared to many other countries around the world. The fact is, we don't start a project into permitting, get to the end of permitting stage in that timeline, and actually have a project off and running. There's there's many other things that come in, right? So there's um, community consultations that should happen in the permitting process. We have all kinds of opportunities where other groups can come in, disrupt the permitting process. And now uh, what might be a seven-year to 10-year average time frame to permit a project stretches to 13, 18, 20. A number of the copper projects that are uh, potential projects in the U.S. Have, were explored in the 1980s. So we identified the copper deposits, um, really found out uh, and assessed their economic viability through the uh, end of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. They started the permitting process in the early 2000s. And here we are 20 years later from when they started the process. And these projects still aren't off the ground. So it's not it, it's easy to point at the permitting process, but there are just so many things that can interact with the actual 
process um, that it doesn't result in the permit at the end, but it can disrupt that whole process. And that that's really what we've been focusing on is how do we actually, how do we put policy in place to streamline all that? Create a lead agency. Everything goes through a lead agency. You don't have other agencies coming in, being able to to go off in their own direction and, and do a different environmental review, or they don't agree with the environmental review of the first agency. And now you've got two different opinions. How do we streamline all that so when the permitting process starts, you can actually get to the point where you can put a, a, a copper mine or a copper project on board? And it doesn't have to be a mine. Um, you mentioned you're from Atlanta. Um, we have a great example. The U.S. has seen a resurgence in secondary recycling and uh, refining capability. Uh, we have five projects that over the starting about two years ago and that will be put into operation probably the last one by the end of 2025 that have been built to bring in more recycled content, um, different uh, grades of recycled content that we haven't been able to effectively uh, refine or use in the U.S. prior to this put those projects on now where we can actually capture that, keep it and bring it back into the supply chain here. And one of them is uh, outside of, uh, not too far outside of Atlanta. Really? And another one's down at um, uh, Port of Savannah. So, so we're seeing a lot of activity in that space right now in the U S and it's exciting to see. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had a new secondary smelting or refining process in the United States in over 30 years. You're talking about the recycling and, and smeltering. Could you talk about that process? Cause I, I'm not familiar with how that works. Um, so Try to educate me a little bit so I can understand. Okay, I'm good. I'll try to make it not as complicated as it seems. There's different ways that it's done. In general, what would so if we're doing primary production, if we're going to take ore out of the ground and, and make refined copper out of it, um, they can do it in open pit mines, but more and more it's from uh, underground mining, block and cave. They go, they drill down into the earth, uh, tunnel out horizontally, use explosives. They explode the roof of that cave they created, that rock falls down. And it's normally in the U.S., we're talking about a rock that has a copper ore grade of about 0.25% purity. So 0.25% uh, of, of every pound is copper. So that uh, drops down, big boulders, crush it down into smaller rocks. Uh, and then it goes through a whole series of processes. They take it out. They Depending on what the ore is, they'll put it on a pile. Um, that has a collection um, system underneath it. Uh, they usually blow air up through the pile, which makes it uh, more efficient. This process is more efficient. And they take a leach solution, which is a kind of a weak um, sulfuric acid mixed with some other components, and they just run it down through this rock, and it leaches the copper out into a liquid. And they take that liquid into the plant, um, and they transfer it from that liquid into another liquid, run electricity through it, and the copper plates out onto a, a uh, cathode sheet and when they pull it out of that process of after about two weeks it takes um you get 99.99 percent pure copper from something that started at 0.25 percent so it, it's amazing if, if you ever get the opportunity to actually see how copper is mined um and you would look out i i've been in this industry for 30 plus years and it amazes me to look and see what it takes to get it and that we can sell it for three dollars and fifty cents four dollars a pound uh, you would be absolutely amazed if you see the process it goes through. Yeah, so. and I mean, I mean, you talk about about copper, you know, how important it is. I mean, we talked about EVs in the beginning and and how lightweight it is for these batteries, and how again important it is for electric vehicles in general and the charging stations. So to understand the process, I'm so glad that you broke it down because I had no idea. It sounds 
pretty complex, uh, pretty complicated. Um, when you see copper, you don't really think about it going through that whole process. But um, the question I would ask you is, you talked about before that last segment about, you know, in the 1980s, you gave this whole example of the permitting process. Now we're sitting here in 2023. And, and so have you seen the permitting process change? Let's say where we are today, as it was, let's say in 1980 or even in 2000, is there more regulation? Is there more policy that is aiding and helping in bringing, I guess, copper mines or, or bringing easier access to copper? On the optimistic side, we're seeing um, motion in that direction, but I don't think you've, we've seen significant change into the permitting process or what it takes to bring on new copper production in the United States for well before that time. Um, so I don't really think we've seen a lot of changes that have uh, increased or accelerated the ability for us to put that on. It would be nice to see, you know, what I, I mentioned about the projects to bring in recycled content and secondary copper. It would nice be nice to be able to see municipalities, uh, states, government, federal government, really see how critical copper is and make it a priority to bring primary projects on, like these secondary projects. These have only been started to be developed in the last couple of years, and they're going to be online and operating in three to five years, right? So very quick, the problem is there is this, I believe that there is a, uh, it is a misconception that we could put a bunch of these recycling and secondary uh, refining projects on, and it's going to solve the problem. It's going to give us all the copper we need to go from 100% internal combustion engines to electric vehicles and to go from fossil fuel power, electrical generation to uh, renewable energy. And it's just a myth. We cannot recycle our way out of the, the demand gap, right? To get the demand, it's going to have to be better recycling, better capture of secondary sources, um, better end-of-life capture of those sources. And we're going to have to bring new primary copper production online. The, the math does, doesn't work out any other way. Um, the, you know, fortunate for us um, and for society, just the accelerated rate at which the, the demand curve due to really do the sustainable transition and clean energy transition is accelerating so rapidly up and to the right that it just takes, it'll take all of these things to create enough supply of copper and other critical minerals to really reach those goals. Right, right. Final question I have for you uh, is going to be around permitting again, because we talked about permitting historically for copper. We talked about how it's changed today. But now I want to understand the disparity between permitting timelines in the U.S. versus other countries in which you've seen, um, as as you said, 30 years in the industry. I'm, I'm sure that you've seen some differences. Yeah, the uh, number of countries. Now, I, I would also have a caution that um, permitting times uh, by their by law, you know, what they, what they have in their law. And a lot of other countries appear to be much, much shorter than the U.S. Uh, Canada appears to be much shorter than the U.S. Australia appears to be much shorter than the U.S. Now, I doubt that most of those actually, not I doubt, I know, most of those don't actually meet what those really short permitting process times are. Um, but they are much shorter than what is in the U.S. So I think Australia, they're in the order of two to three years maybe, uh, I think Canada is about seven years. Um, so, no, oh, Canada is two, three years. So you know, if you can, if we can get that hurdle out of the way that quickly, which we can't do in the U.S., um, 
it takes the risk of a copper mining company. It takes some of that risk of, I'm going to take billions of dollars. I'm going to put it into the um, administrative side of getting this project off the ground to get the permit, to do the environmental impact reports, to do all, all of the paperwork that it needs to get approval. Um, I eliminate some of the risk from that, but I also eliminate the risk of all the billions of dollars I'm going to put into this project to make sure that the copper grade's economically feasible, uh, what it's going to take to start getting plant construction up and mine construction up. Um, you know, copper's a globally traded commodity. Prices go up and down. So projects might be economically viable at $4 a pound copper that if it goes to $3.50 a pound copper, they're no longer economically viable. So the quicker those projects can be put in place, it takes some of that risk out where those companies can actually start getting some return and make those projects successful. Uh, otherwise, you know, you put it in one environment, you start dragging out that that permitting process. Now a project that was viable economically and technically viable, um, now all of a sudden that equation flipped. We put billions of dollars into getting the permits and all of the the paperwork and approvals, and now we can't put the production online uh, because it just doesn't make sense from a business standpoint. Right. So it's really that idea of, and, and other countries, I, I, my belief is the reason that you see this with other countries, they prioritized actual operationalization and production of these minerals. They've looked ahead, said, here's our policy goal to balance the budget, the mineral budget that we need to achieve this policy. We got to make sure we have an effective way to get those things in the market. Um, and, and really, that's what we need here. Right. Well, I just want to thank you so much, Andy, for coming on and talking about copper. I mean, I think everyone in the room can can agree that we learned something today. So thank you so much. And I know that listeners will really enjoy this conversation. Well, thank you a lot, Preston. Anytime.